Here it is. From deep inside your radio. Ladies and gentlemen, from the Grand Global Radio Complex in London, sandwiched between classic and smooth. And now, for the first time in a long time, Tales of Airport Security. Starting right off with it. Fidgeting, whistling, sweaty palms at one point. Each, arrogance, a cold penetrating stare, rigid posture, two points each. These are just a few of the suspicious signs that the TSA directs its officers to look out for and score as they look at airport travelers. This is according to a confidential TSA document obtained by The Intercept, an online magazine. The checklist is part of TSA's controversial program to identify potential terrorists based on behaviors that it thinks indicate stress or deception, known as the screening known as the screening of passengers by observation techniques or SPOT. Here's SPOT. Watch SPOT run. The program employs specially trained officers known as behavior detection officers or BDOs to watch and interact with passengers going through screening. The document listing the criteria, the SPOT referral report, is not classified but it has been closely held by TSA and has not been previously released. The checklist ranges from the obvious, like appears to be in disguise, that's three points, to uh, a bobbing Adam's apple. Many indicators like trembling and arriving late for flight appear to confirm allegations that the program picks out signs and emotions that are common to many people who fly. A TSA spokesperson declined to comment on the criteria obtained by The Intercept. Since its introduction in 2007, SPOT, the program, has attracted controversy for the lack of science supporting it. In 2013, the Government Accountability Office found that there was no evidence to back up the idea that behavioral indicators can be used to identify persons who may pose a risk to aviation security. After analyzing hundreds of scientific studies, the GAO concluded the human ability to identify accurately deceptive behavior based on behavioral indicators is the same as, or slightly better, than chance. The Inspector General of the Department of Homeland Security found two years ago that TSA had failed to evaluate SPOT, cannot show that the program is cost-effective or can reasonably justify the program's expansion. Despite those concerns, TSA has trained and deployed thousands of BDOs. The program has cost nearly a billion dollars since it began in 2007. One former behavioral detection officer, manager, didn't want to be identified, said spot indicators are used by law enforcement to justify pulling aside anyone officers find suspicious, rather than acting as an actual checklist for specific indicators. The signs of deception and fear are ridiculous, the source continued. These are just catch-all behaviors to justify BDO interaction with passenger. A license to harass. He continues, the program is flawed and unnecessarily delays and harasses travelers. 
taxpayer dollars would be better spent funding real police at TSA checkpoints. A second former BDO manager who asked not to be identified told The Intercept the program suffers from a lack of science and simple inconsistency with every airport training its officers differently. The spot program is BS, the manager told Intercept using the full word complete BS, he added. Tales of Airport Security, a copyrighted feature of Hello, Welcome to the Show. When you say you don't know what to play, I don't know what you're talking about. I've known from the very first day It's inside and it wants to get out I don't try to sound some other way Cause I'm free from self-hatred and doubt I'm in touch and my inner child is funky Cause my music is my monkey Wanna pour me a swig to get by I can sure flip my wig on that stuff Wanna pass me a smoke, can't deny It's a gas of a joke with a buff Try to sell me a spike to get high I got to tell you I'm quite high enough Can't you see I don't need to be no junkie Cause my music is my monkey From London, England, home of uh, some fearsome traffic today, at least. I'm Harry Shearer, welcoming you to this edition of the show. Ladies and gentlemen, you know what they tell us. If you haven't done anything wrong, you've got nothing to hide. So, it took WikiLeaks and the New York Times to find out what the latest draft of at least one chapter of the proposed Trans-Pacific Partnership that President Obama wants Congress to approve without 
debate. That's called Fast Track. This uh, chapter would allow foreign foreign corporations to sue the United States government for actions that undermine their investment expectations. That's right. Their expectations could trump United States law or the laws of any state. In a court that is set up as a special private court by this proposed treaty. Uh, that would grant broad powers to multinational companies operating in North America, South America, and Asia. Companies and investors would be empowered to challenge regulations, rules, government actions, and court rulings before tribunals organized under the World Bank or the United Nations. Doesn't that sound like something that would tick off conservatives? Hello? Hello, conservatives. No. This on uh, emerging trade accord is supported by a wide variety variety of business groups and favored by most Republicans. It could even, according to one analyst, require the United States to uh, pay the judgment of this court in a currency other than dollars, which would erode the sovereignty of the United States. But going back to the... uh, question I asked at the beginning here, or the statement, if you haven't done anything wrong, you got nothing to hide. The cover of this chapter mandates that it not be declassified until four years after the treaty comes into force or the negotiations end if the agreement fails. Four years after it goes into effect, you get to find out what it is. You haven't done anything wrong. You got nothing to hide. Ladies and gentlemen, let us try the motto of the United States Army Corps of Engineers. They're trying to kill off a lot of birds. 11,000 cormorants. Double-crested, you know. Uh, The Audubon Society is saying it will sue if the agency goes through. The agency contends the killing, the Corps of Engineers, that is, says the killing is necessary to blunt the bird's impact on endangered salmon smelts that swim past Sand Island on their way to the sea. If uh, the permits are approved by the Fish and Wildlife Service, the Audubon Society say it will, says it will sue. A statement by the uh, Audubon Society's director says he's deeply disappointed by the Corps' decision. He says the Corps is blaming birds for the struggles facing endangered salmon, ignoring the Columbia River Dam's much larger contribution to salmon deaths. Those dams... Oh, those dams were built by the United States Army Corps of Engineers. That would explain it. Let us try. You know, ladies and gentlemen, the good people at BP have been uh, campaigning for a little while now on the grounds that some nasty people in Louisiana have been putting in claims for compensation under the the system approved by BP, which has a um, a judge or a, a lawyer, a, mass, a special master of some kind, uh, adjudicating these claims. And BP has been doing advertising and lobbying in Washington, complaining that some of those people in Louisiana, you know those people in Louisiana, they've been, they've been taking advantage of BP. You know, good old BP? 
Well, Dayline Sacramento. BP will pay California, the state of California, almost $8 million to settle complaints that it claimed payments from the underground storage tank cleanup fund with false or misleading statements. 30 of its cleanup sites are permanently disqualified from such payments. The State Water Resources Control Board said disqualifying 90 sites, sorry, 90, not 30, uh, disqualifying 90 sites could save the state up to $135 million. In addition, BP's 153 other cleanup sites, which are eligible for reimbursements, will have a $25,400 offset levied against each one, reducing its claims by almost $3.5 million. BP agreed to the deal in a False Claims Act settlement with the State Water Board. BP failed to report reimbursements it received from insurance companies for the same sites for which it claimed reimbursements from the state fund. That happens to be prohibited. Really? BP was trying to double dip? Just like those nasty people in Louisiana. But uh, thank, thank goodness they're not a British company. Otherwise, I'd have to go to their headquarters walking distance from the studio to complain. Now, ladies and gentlemen, News of the Godly. An anorexic Spanish teenager endured 13 exorcisms because her religious parents were convinced her eating disorder had something to do with her being possessed by the devil. You've heard of him. He's the supreme evil one. It's right over my shoulder, pushing buttons. The girl who has not been named attempted suicide after being subjected to the physical abuse, which involved her being tied up and having crucifixes positioned over her head. According to the Spanish newspaper El País, a judge called for the arrest of Jesus Hernández Sahagún, the official exorcist in Valladolid, a city in Castile and León in, North, León in northwestern Spain. The charges against the exorcist include gender violence, causing injury and mistreatment, during the series of exorcisms dating as far back as 2012. The girl's parents were convinced she was under the control of the devil and arranged for the exorcisms. They told the court the exorcist was aware that the young girl was having medical treatment for her eating disorder. Um, Sahagun defended carrying out 13 exorcisms, stating the girl was possessed by the devil. He says he's performed 200 exorcisms over the past four and a half years. Foreign people were jailed in France two years ago for kidnapping a 19-year-old woman, crucifying her by tying her with ropes and leaving her until she was close to death. It was an attempt to exercise malign spirits they believed had possessed her. The devil's got to be jealous, I would say, if, if, there, if, if, he, if he'd be existful. The leadership, more news of the godly, the leadership of the Jehovah's Witnesses for 25 years has instructed its elders to keep cases of child sexual abuse secret from law enforcement and members of their own congregations. This according to an, examin of, an examination of thousands of pages of documents by the Center for Investigative Reporting. The religion's parent organization, the Watchtower Bible and Tract Society of New York, issued the directives in at least 10 memos dating back to 1989. The memos were anonymously written but Watchtower officials have testified the organization's governing body approved them all. 
The most recent one, dated November of last year, instructed elders, the spiritual leaders of local congregations, to form confidential committees to handle potential criminal matters internally. That's for internal use only. In some cases, the elders will form a judicial committee to handle the alleged wrongdoing that may also constitute a violation of criminal law, according to the directive. Generally, the elders should not delay the judicial committee process, but strict confidentiality must be maintained to avoid unnecessary entanglement with secular authorities. Unquote. Within the organization, the Watchtower has final say over who is considered a serial child abuser. According to a 2012 memo, quote, not every individual who has sexually abused a child in the past is considered a predator. Unquote. Internal documents obtained by the center show the witnesses have systematically instructed elders and other leaders to keep child sexual abuse confidential while collecting detailed information on congregants who prey on children. The witnesses are using a First Amendment strategy to defend policies that shield serial predators from law enforcement. In many ways, the response by the witnesses in recent child sexual abuse cases has mirrored the actions of another religious group, the ultra-Orthodox Jews in New York. There, the community has faced a backlash for asking observant Jews to consult a rabbi instead of going immediately to police with evidence of abuse. And the Australian Salvation Army failed to protect young boys in its care from sexual abuse. A report by Australia's Royal Commission examined four homes run by the charity in New South Wales and Queensland. Queensland? Good day, mate. It detailed brutal sexual and psychological abuse of young boys put in the care of the state at four homes between 1965 and 1977. Why, that's so long ago, really, you know? It's so like a commission to do that. Boys who attempted to report abuse were punished or accused of lying, it said. The commissioners found that the Salvation Army did not protect the boys from sexual abuse in each of the four homes. It also found the Salvation Army received more than 100 claims of child sexual abuse concerning boys' homes, and in most cases, the boys who reported the abuse were punished, disbelieved, or no action was taken. The report described... Think of this the next time you see the guy with the, with the kettle. The report described a bear pit mentality, that's a quote, in the four homes, in which boys were subjected to regular and excessive physical punishment as well as psychological abuse. Examples included a boy dangled headfirst into a well, another tied to a tree with a chain attached to a metal collar, and another which, you know, it's mealtime somewhere in the world, I'm not going to tell you about it. Boys at the homes were also subjected to violent abuse, sexual abuse by staff and other boys, Kate Eastman, counsel for the Salvation Army, apologized during the hearings for the horrific experiences suffered by the victims. We acknowledge it was a failure of the greatest magnitude, she said, adding the Salvation Army has put in safeguards to ensure children in its care will never be placed in situations like this, this again. The no more bear pits pledge, ladies and gentlemen, from the Salvation Army. News of the godly. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast. And now... News of the warm, won't you? Soft, listen to the warm. We can listen to the warm. 
A new study led by Scripps Institution of Oceanography at UC San Diego has revealed that the thickness of Antarctica's floating ice shelves has recently decreased by as much as 18% in certain areas over nearly two decades. Talk about thin ice. Talking about being on thin ice. Data from nearly two decades of satellite missions have shown the ice volume decline is accelerating, according to the study published in the journal Science and supported by NASA. Merging data from three overlapping space missions, the researchers identified changes in ice thickness that took place over more than a decade. Total ice shelf volume across Antarctica changed very little from 1994 to 2003, then declined rapidly. What could that be? West Antarctic ice shelves lost ice throughout the entire observation period with accelerated loss in the most recent period. Earlier gains in East Antarctic ice shelf volume ceased after about 2003. Some ice shelves, I know it's tough to say ice ice shelves, that's why I do it that way, lost up to 18% of their volume from 1994 to 2012. 18% over the course of 18 years is really a substantial change, said one of the researchers. Why, that would be averaging out a percent a year. Overall, he says, we show not only the total ice shelf volume is decreasing, but we see an acceleration in the last decade. While melting ice shelves do not contribute directly to sea level rise, the researchers indicate there's an important indirect effect. In Scotland, this is kind of good news. Uh, First of all, in the United Kingdom generally, renewable energy sources overtook nuclear energy sources in the in the amount of the percentage of uh, energy they contribute to the national grid last year for the first time and in Scotland last year saw renewable energy meet close to 50% of the country's electricity demand who do they think there are germany solar biomass wind and hydropower each hit record levels of production in scotland the dominant clean energy source there is onshore wind, pardon me, which powered 30% of Scotland's electricity needs. Well, if the Scots can do it, and the United Nations warns the world could have a 40% water shortfall in just 15 years unless countries dramatically change their use of the resource. Many underground water reserves are already running low. Rainfall patterns are predicted to become Erratic with climate change as the world. <laughs> the UN still believes in that. There's a Republican majority in the Congress. What do you, as the world's population grows to an expected 9 billion by 2050, more groundwater will be needed for farming, industry, and personal consumption. How do they grind water anyway? Wow. I got to read up. The report predicts global water demand will increase 55% by 2050 while reserves dwindle. If current usage trends, trends don't change, the world will have only 60% of the water it needs in 2030. Well, we're not, I mean, we just use 7 million gallons per fracking well, but we're not wasting, and we have lawns and California. Having less available water risks catastrophe on many fronts. Crops could fail, ecosystems could break down, industries could collapse, disease and poverty could worsen, and violent conflicts over access to water could become more frequent. Come on, humans aren't going to fight over water. Unless the balance between demand and finite supplies is restored, says the World Water Development Report, the world will face an increasingly severe global water 
deficit. In many countries, including India, water use is largely unregulated and often wasteful. Pollution of water is often ignored and unpunished. So I'd say buy tanks, ladies and gentlemen. Start storing your water now. You know, your house would look good with about 14 water tanks behind it. I think. That's just me personally, but it is just me personally. And uh, now, ladies and gentlemen, news from outside the bubble. A major security hole that could allow an attacker to read or change someone's vote has been discovered in uh, Australia's online iVote platform, according to security experts. The iVote system allows people to lodge their votes online instead of visiting a physical polling station. It aims to make voting easier for the disabled or for people who live long distances from polling booths, but security researchers say they found a critical issue alerting the New South Wales Electoral Electoral Commission, which said it fixed the problem. Researchers found the security vulnerability, saying it was a difficult hack to pull off but could potentially affect ballots en masse. Said one of the researchers, we've been told repeatedly that votes are perfectly secret and the whole system is secure and it can't be tampered with and so on, and we've shown very clearly that that's not true, that these votes are not secret and they can be tampered with. She said the attack could allow another person to either read or even manipulate a vote before it was sent to the Electoral Commission's servers. The voter would be unaware their vote had been changed. She, Chief researcher said she was not convinced any electronic voting system was safe. Quote, just because they patched this particular bug that they've been specifically notified of does not mean they fixed the fundamental questions around the security and viability of the system. Unquote. Uh, another quote, if anything, the existence of this one particular bug serves to bolster the argument that these kinds of bugs are probably inevitable in these kinds of systems. Unquote. The Electoral Commission remains confident in its electronic voting system. Paper ballots, ladies and gentlemen. You heard it here last. Meanwhile, Saudi Arabia's campaign to build a broad Sunni alliance to contain Iran has apparently suffered at least a setback from Pakistan which has opted, at least for now, to avoid becoming entangled in the sectarian Cold War between Riyadh and Tehran. This is a report from Al-Monitor, a Mideast news service. The Pakistani prime minister was invited to Saudi Arabia for urgent talks with the new king and his advisors. The main topic, Iranian aggression in the Arab world. The king wanted firm assurances from the Pakistani prime minister. Pakistan would align itself with Saudi Arabia and its Sunni Arab allies against Iran, especially in the proxy war now underway in Yemen. But the Pakistani government is arguing their military is already overstretched, facing their traditional enemy, India, and increasing threat from the Pakistani Taliban. Pakistan is a close ally of the Saudis. The ambiguous and mysterious Pakistani nuclear connection with Saudi Arabia will remain in the background, according to Al-Monitor. What's that about? Well, Saudi Arabia will not rule out building or acquiring nuclear weapons, according to the country's ambassador to the United States. 
This is our freedom-loving friends. Asked whether Saudi Arabia would ever build nuclear weapons. Adel Al-Jabir said the subject was not something we would discuss publicly. Western intelligence agencies believe the Saudi monarchy paid for up to 60% of Pakistan's nuclear program in return for the ability to buy warheads for itself at short notice, according to the Guardian newspaper. The two countries are sometimes said to have a special relationship. Saudi regime already possesses medium-range ballistic missiles. But we're not scared of that, are we? And finally, outside the bubble, you know that there's a campaign on to retake the town of Tikrit, the, uh, the hometown of Saddam Hussein. This is in Iraq, ladies and gentlemen, just to remind you. Um, for the first part of this campaign, it was Iraqi army troops, what few there are of them. Uh, I'll get to that in a moment. Uh, accompanied by militias and accompanied by Iranian, Iranian advisors. Uh, now, this week, the United States has started aerial bombardment to uh, supposedly help that mission, the retaking of Tikrit from the Islamic State. The militia fighters now say, as long as the Americans are bombing, they won't fight. They'll sit where they are, but they won't help the fight. They claim the Americans, quote, are trying to steal the victory from us. The U.S. says otherwise. But just so you know how this stacks up numerically, McClatchy newspaper reports the Tikrit campaign is heavily reliant on Iranian-backed Shiite factions. The uh, chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff offers this breakdown of the pro-Iraqi government fighters. 20,000 Shiite militiamen, 3,000 Iraqi security forces, 1,000 Sunni tribesmen. The kind you can, you know, pay off to uh, fight on whatever side you are. But, you know, the, uh, the, the Iranian-backed militias are now sitting back, waiting for us to finish the job. News from outside the bubble, ladies and gentlemen, a copyrighted feature of this broadcast. sang the best she'd ever sang She could never sing any better But Mr. Davidson never rang She knew he would forget her She'd seen him there And put herself to ransom He had stared He really was quite really looked her best She could never look any better But she knew she'd failed the test She knew he would forget her Triumphant was the way she felt As she acknowledged the applause Triumphant was the way she 
London, this is the show. They got that much right. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the apologies of the week. We're so sorry. Deadline Ponchatoula, Louisiana, a meeting between Strawberry Festival officials, Kiwanis Club members, and NACP members ended with a public apology this week for a poster that some found insulting and an agreement not to sell the poster at the festival. The Strawberry Board didn't want to hurt anybody's feelings, get anybody insulted whatsoever. Neither the Kiwanis or the city, and we're going to stand behind each other in this, and we apologize if we hurt feelings, said Festival Chairman Donald Lanier. The NAACP had asked for an apology from the artist for remarks. He said in interviews, leaders claim that he said black people should be honored that they're the subject of his artwork. The poster depicts two very dark, faceless black children with large, large bright red lips in a style reminiscent of Jim Crow-era advertisements. Deadline London, British Prime Minister David Cameron apologized this week to thousands of people who were infected with HIV and hepatitis C after being treated for unrelated conditions with contaminated blood in the 70s and 80s. Survivors and relatives of people who died after being infected through blood therapies or transfusions have campaigned for years for information about what happened, compensation, and for anyone responsible for mistakes to be held accountable. Accountability? What country are you living in? To each and every one of those people, I would like to say sorry on behalf of the government for something that should not have happened, said the Prime Minister, adding the government would provide up to $37 million this year to help transition to a better compensation system. Why, that's enough to build a website. University of California President Janet Napolitano has publicly, publicly apologized for referring to a UC student protest as crap the day before. More than a week after a video surfaced of an Oklahoma chapter of Sigma Alpha Epsilon singing a racist song, the National Fraternity announced a four-part diversity initiative and said it is starting a review. The executive director of the fraternity apologized on behalf of the fraternity for pain the racist video has caused. Incidentally, the song sung in the racist video apparently was learned at a leadership conference of the fraternity attended by some of the people from Oklahoma University. Interesting. They line San Francisco. St. Mary's Cathedral in San Francisco will dismantle a system that pours water on entrance areas of the church frequented by the homeless after receiving informal notice of violation 
from the city. Meanwhile, the San Francisco Archdiocese has apologized for the misunderstood and ill-conceived effort to keep homeless people out of alcoves used to exit and enter the church. Australian Prime Minister Tony Abbott has been forced to take back his second Nazi command in a month after comparing the opposition leader to a notorious World War II-era minister of Germany. He called the Labour Party leader the Dr. Goebbels of economic policy. He then apologized. Saudi Arabia reinstated its ambassador to Sweden after the European country apologized for the recent crisis with the kingdom. After Swedish criticism of the monarchy's laws, which was considered by Saudi Arabia an intervention in its internal affairs. Dayline Washington, the Undersecretary of the Army, this week apologized for the military's treatment of American service members exposed to chemical weapons in Iraq. He announced new steps to provide medical support to those with lingering health effects and to recognize veterans who had been denied awards. Undersecretary Brad Carson acknowledged the military had not followed its own policies for caring for troops exposed to old and abandoned chemical munitions that had been scattered around Iraq, and he vowed improvements. Deadline Nairobi. Kenya's president apologized this week to the Kenyan people for past wrongs committed both by his government and past regimes. President Uhuru Kenyatta told Parliament during a State of the Nation address, they got one of those there? The time has come to bring closure to the country's painful past. He mentioned the post-election violence a few years ago, the 1984 massacre of hundreds of Kenyan Somalis and unsolved murders among the historical injustices. He, um, well, the International Criminal Court dropped crimes against humanity charges against him earlier this month after the prosecution said it couldn't proceed with the case because of lack of evidence, which it blamed on witness intimidation and lack of cooperation by the Kenyan government. In meeting with representatives of minority communities in Israel this week, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu apologized for the remarks he made on Election Day about Arab-Israeli voters. I know that the things I said a few days ago hurt some citizens in Israel, the Arab-Israeli citizens, Netanyahu said. This was not my intention, and I am sorry. He had said the right-wing government is in danger. Arab voters are going en masse to the polls. Left-wing non-governmental organizations are bringing them on buses. That garnered extensive criticism. The apologies of the week, ladies and gentlemen. Copyrighted feature of this broadcast and now news of AFAC! There is, a, first of all, the story which you may have heard or seen about Farakunda. A young woman, 27 years old, beaten to death by a mob in the center of Kabul last week. Beaten to death, her body then set on fire, then dumped in the Kabul River. Near the presidential palace, a mullah had said Farakunda had burned the Quran. Uh, she, her, uh, her family said all she did was tell him that his business of selling small scraps of paper with religious verses that are supposed to be powerful spells was against Islam. He began to yell that Farakunda had desecrated the holy book. Soon a crowd formed and began to beat her with sticks and stones. They tied her to a car, dragged her through the streets, burned her body on the riverbank. And uh, some of the public figures in uh, Afghanistan, including Afghan cleric Malawi Ayaz Niazi, said the people who killed her should not be punished. Meanwhile, Former President Karzai disagrees with the U.S. president's 
decision to slow the withdrawal of troops from Afghanistan, a decision made when the current president of Afghanistan, Dr. Ghani, uh, visited Washington in a uh, series of meetings that the New York Times reported was uh, orchestrated to a great degree by Dr. Ghani's friends that he made when he was working in the United States at the World Bank after he graduated from Columbia, a point he made to his former Columbia, fellow Columbia graduate, Barack Obama, um, that the uh, visit was choreographed by his friends in uh, the government and, at, at, uh, and which triggered the president, uh, president Obama's decision to slow the withdrawal of troops. As I say, Karzai disagrees in an interview with CNBC. And he dismissed claims by U.S. intelligence officials that he is under treatment for a bipolar condition. This is an example of how propaganda was conducted, he says, to tarnish my image and weaken me and throw me into insignificant. insignificance. He uh, says the U.S. was in Afghanistan for 13 years, and today we have exactly the same fight going on as we did 13 years ago. The war on terror has failed. There has to be a change in policies, says Karzai. Karzai, by the way, was almost killed by a uh, U.S. missile strike in a new book, a former CIA agent, Robert Grenier, the former station chief in Pakistan, says Karzai was uh, visiting an Afghan schoolhouse in December of 2001 when an American soldier accompanying them accidentally triggered a U.S. missile strike on their own location. Karzai escaped relatively unscathed. As you know, the United States... uh, very glad Karzai is not there anymore, not uh, in office anymore, because uh, of his public criticisms. M- much different from uh, the new president, Ghani, who went out of his way to thank the United States, to express gratitude and a hope for better relations. And uh, what he got in return was more U.S. troops staying longer than had originally been scheduled. That's how it looks from here. How does it look from there? From Afghanistan Public Radio, home of the world's longest pledge drive. From the abandoned American broadcasting truck in downtown Kabul, where the checkpoints never close. I'm Mahmoud. And I'm Hamid. We're Brick and Brack, the Chachki Brothers. <laughs> Welcome to another edition of Karzai Talk. Today's program comes to you with the assistance of the official Afghanistan Mafia, Organizing your crime since the cows left home. (laughs) (laughs) Well, my younger brother, Mm -hmm. our new president, went to Washington this week. And it looks like they treated him like a long-lost schnauzer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, last time they were that nice to me, it was ten years ago, when Mm. they gave me the green serapi thing and told me, this is your brand. (laughs) (laughs) Well, as brandings go, Mm. that's uh, pretty painless. Oh, indeed. But they were so nice to our uh, friend, Mr. Ghani. They announced they were going to keep more troops in this country longer. Uh, That's because our... Army is so bad? No, it's because our army is so good. Mm -hmm. If our army was bad, they'd have to keep even more troops here even longer. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, I'm a poor Toyota dealer. Uh, I wish I understood the intricacies of global geopolitics like my younger brother does. I wish I understood the intricacies of predatory car loans like my brother does. (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't. Hello, you're on cars, I talk. Hello, this is Abibula. A uh, long time nobody, first time caller. Oh, my friend, nobody is a nobody in the new Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. 
You mean I am somebody? Well, you don't have to go all Jesse Jackson on our behinds, Connor. <laughs> <laughs> but yes, thanks to ten years of hard work by our American friends, you can now join the ranks of free people around the world who dream of achieving their dreams by being born American next time round. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, that's uh, kind of what I wanted to uh, to ask you. Oh, no. We don't talk about the reincarnation on this show. <laughs> you have to call reincar talk. <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I mean, uh, the, the, the Americans are, are staying here to do more training. That's right, for the big fighting season coming up. Get your tickets now. They're going fast. <laughs> <laughs> So do I have to be in the army or the police force to be trained by the Americans? No, that would be discrimination, Mm. for example. If you were working in government, Mm -hmm. the Americans might be able to train you to avoid the kind of corruption that plagues us here in Afghanistan. Yes, they can instruct you in a much subtler kind of corruption. Getting a post-government job in the banking industry, for example. (laughs) (laughs) But, but Collar, Uh what do you do? Uh, I'm a dog walker. Oh, that sounds like an interesting job. Uh, uh, Actually, it's uh, very stressful. Oh, really? Uh, Yes, every day I go out walking uh, uh, half a dozen animals, Mm -hmm. and I uh, come back with uh, one or two. Hmm. They get lost? No, they get eaten. (laughs) (laughs) Well, see, the Americans could train you to stay out of the Chinese neighborhood. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks for the call. You know, uh, your successor actually impressed the Americans this week just by expressing his gratitude for their sacrifice, for their billions. And for all the spare parts they left behind. (laughs) 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 But it's true, my brother. The Americans are easily impressed. Uh, They're like your first girlfriend. Oh, yes. You tell her you love her and she believes you. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. (laughs) Hello, you're on cars, I talk. Uh, Hello. Uh, I don't uh, want to give my name. I'm a long-time woman, uh, first-time caller. Ooh, we love having female callers on the show. Mm. I just have to uh, drape this burka over the phone. (laughs) (laughs) Come on. And uh, you don't want to give your name why? The people in my neighborhood uh, said they would uh, stone me to death if I called you a program. No, I know our jokes are bad, but that's kind of an overreaction. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, No, not that they like your jokes, but they think a woman uh, should be listening only to... uh, cooking and sewing shows. Oh, you know, Connor, I hate to disagree with you, but in the new Afghanistan, our American friends have helped us create. Such a thing can't uh, possibly happen. Uh, With respect, Mr. Former President, Mm -hmm. I beg to differ. Uh, Just last week, uh, the sister-in-law of my cousin was threatened with death for dog-earing a page of the Quran. Oh, but you know that such behaviors can now be prosecuted and that the perpetrators will be judged by a mob of their peers. <laughs> uh, caller, yes. you don't have a name, no. which already violates our format. Do you at least have a question? Uh, yes. Uh, should I worry about the, uh, drinking water from the Kabul River? Oh, you mm. mean because of things that may on occasion find their way into it? Uh, you could put it that way, yes. Well, caller... Our city's water will be pristine and healthful once more, just as soon as the new Kabul water filtration plant is completed. Which will be 
very soon after they find the guy who's supposed to be building it. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way. Thanks for the call. We had help today from the Fund for Afghanistan Exceptionalism. Afghanistan, we're exceptional too. Legal services for cars I talk by the law firm of Ketchum and Nukem. I'm Hamid. And I'm Mahmoud. Join us next time for another edition of Cars I Talk. This is APR, Afghanistan Public Radio. I'm fixing a hole where the rain gets in And stops my mind from wandering where it And kept my mind from wandering where it will go. And it really doesn't matter if I'm wrong and right, where I belong and right, where I belong. See the people standing there who disagree, never win, wonder why they don't get in my door. And now, ladies and gentlemen, news from our, about our friend, the Atom. Clean, safe, too cheap to meet. Safe, cheap, too cheap to meet. Cheap, safe, too safe to meet. Safe, safe, too safe to meet. Our, our friend, the Atom, Addie the Atom, is, uh, is away today. He's having a a muon transplant. But here is news. A radiation leak at an underground nuclear waste dump, that one we've been talking about for a while, in New Mexico was caused by, quote, chemically incompatible contents, unquote, including cat litter that reacted inside a barrel of waste, causing it to rupture, scientists said this week. The U.S. Energy Department's final report on last year's accident at the waste isolation pilot plant showed that a drum of waste containing radioisotopes like, like plutonium was improperly packaged, 
at Los Alamos National Laboratory before arriving for disposal. The improper mix in the barrel, including the wrong sort of cat litter used to absorb liquids, sparked a chemical reaction causing it to heat up and generate gases that dislodged its lid, spewing radioactive materials, the investigators found. The radiation leak did not result from a detonation, the report showed. The accident exposed 22 workers to radiation in amounts and uh, not expected to threaten their health, according to the contractor that operates the plant. The accident indefinitely suspended key operations at the site, the Energy Department's only permanent underground repository for certain types of radiological waste tied to U.S. nuclear labs and weapon sites. The initial recovery cost of the dump, quarter of a billion dollars, It might be two or more years before it gets back into service. Dateline White Plains, New York, federal regulators this week, actually a couple weeks ago, said the owners of Indian Point Energy Center in Westchester County failed to amend a nuclear reactor operator's license when the man developed sleep apnea, which prevents restful sleep and causes drowsiness. Nuclear Nuclear Regulatory Commission announced that it issued a violation to Energy nuclear for that omission. Dateline Tokyo, Japanese government auditors say the operator of Fukushima has wasted more than a third of the $1.6 billion in taxpayer money allocated for cleaning up the plant after the whole thing. A bordered audit report describes various expensive machines and untested measures that ended in failure. It also says the cleanup work has been dominated by No kidding. One group of Japanese utility construction and electronics giants, despite repeated calls for more transparency and greater access for international bidders. Some of the stuff they bought that didn't work, uh, the French company, Arriva, sold them a machine to remove radioactive cesium from water leaking from the three reactors. The trouble-plagued machine lasted just three months, treated a tiny fraction of the volume leaking every day. It's been since replaced with Japanese and American machines. Seawater was used early in the crisis, you may remember, to cool the reactors. Machines costing $150 million from several companies were supposed to remove the salt. One of the machines functioned only five days. The longest lasted just six weeks. But, you know, hey, they tried. Deadline Budapest, the details of Hungary's deal with Russia to expand its only nuclear power plant, will remain secret for 30 years after new legislation was approved, keeping it on the uh, down low. But, you know, they're not doing anything wrong. They've got plenty to hide. Korea's nuclear power plants had almost 12 times more industrial accidents than other kinds of power plants, largely due to a shortage of manpower, the Korean government says. It's a results from a study of contract workers' working environment, contract structures, and the budget allocated for reactor maintenance. Deadline Berlin, a report commissioned by the German government, believes nuclear power firms have not set aside enough money to cover the long-term costs of decommissioning plants, according to a copy of the report seen by Reuters. The 36 billion euros already set set aside by Germany's four nuclear operators is insufficient, meaning the costs could fall on the public purse. Well, that could never happen. What? What are you looking at me like that for? Clean, cheap, safe. Too safe to clean up. Our friend the Atom.
And uh, on the subject of you got nothing to hide because you did nothing wrong, most oil and gas drillers kept secret at least one chemical used in hydraulic fracturing. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, scoring filings on the industry-backed Frack Focus online registry. But it's okay. They did nothing wrong. They just didn't, you know, they got secrets. What are you, what are you looking at? And ladies and gentlemen, unsecretly, that concludes this week's edition of the show. The program returns next week at the same time over these same stations over NPR worldwide throughout Europe. The U.S. and 440 cable system in Japan, around the world, through the facilities of the American Forces Network, up and down the east coast of North America via the shortwave giant WBCQ. On the Mighty 104 in Berlin, around the world via the Internet at two different locations, live and archived, whenever you want it, harryshare.com and kcsn.org. Available as a free podcast at at wwno.org, Sideshow Network, SoundCloud, iTunes, and TuneIn.com. And it'd be just like no one was in that fracking fluid. If you'd agree to join with me then. Would you already thank you very much, uh uh-huh. tip of the show chapeau to the San Diego, Pittsburgh, Chicago in exile and Hawaii desks. Thanks to Pam Halstead and Jenny Lawson and Adrian Bodnam, Bodders, here at this crazy uh, love affair called Global Radio for helping with today's broadcast. The email address for this program, a playlist of the music heard here on and Cars I Talk t-shirts all available at harryshearer.com. And me, thank you for asking. I'm the Harry Shearer on Twitter. The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO New Orleans, flagship station of the Change is Easy Radio Network. So long from London.